Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Sci-Files, an impact exposure series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts, Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Fuentes. This summer, our theme is focusing on the relationship between graduate student mentors and their undergraduate student mentees. Mentoring is an important part of research and helps students develop into the scientists of today. Today we're interviewing two people, which is really exciting for us, but before I introduce them, I want to explain why we're here with two people. We wanted to focus on undergraduate and graduate relationships of mentoring and mentee. Daniel and I went to Florida International University for our undergraduate studies, and over there we participated in something called a peer mentor program. Peer mentor programs are where we were mentors for classrooms for freshman experienced students, and we were able to be mentors for a bunch of people back then. And then when we came to Michigan State University, we went to a workshop on mentoring mentee relationships that was hosted by Melissa McDaniels in the graduate school. And we really think that it's important to talk about what's going on and how these people work together, but also what happens with those mentees? Like what, go, what do they do afterwards and how has this impacted them? And if there's any graduate students currently listening right now, the mentoring relationships workshop is usually offered at least once or twice a semester. So I'd highly encourage anybody that has the time to attend this very impactful workshop. Yeah, you guys can also contact the graduate school for more information. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce Fariel and Kate. Fariel, could you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, my name is Fariel Mir. I'm a DOPHD student on campus, and I started at Michigan State about three years ago. Um, I was interested in MSU specifically for the DOPHD program, and um, I now work in uh, Dr. Eric Shapiro's lab in the radiology department, also associated with the Institute of Quantitative Health Sciences and Engineering. I'm Kate Hammond. I just graduated here from MSU with a degree in physiology, and I'm about to start uh, medical school at MSU-COM with Fariel this year. Uh, we work together, and we have worked together for the past several years, three years in the Shapiro lab. Uh, so we've known each other for a really long time. Great. Thanks so much for introducing both of yourselves. Fariel, can you tell me a little bit about the different research projects going on in your laboratory right now? Yeah, of course. Uh, so we have a lot of different projects going on in the lab. I specifically work on a project that uh, revolves around a liver transport protein. And this liver transport protein takes a lot of the uh, compounds circulating in the body and takes them, brings them into the liver for further kind of filtration and cleaning up the body. One of the compounds that are taken up in the liver are, um, MR, are, are MRI contrast agents. So the whole family of MRI contrast agents can be taken up in the liver. And these contrast agents are the agents that you have injected in, into uh, your body to better image different structures that are, that, that are present, um, such as tumors or even, you know, kind of normal structures in the body. Um, and the radiology lab that I work in uh, ha has really focused in on these transport proteins to try to create a new version of the transport proteins that takes up these contrast agents even better. Do you guys use the contrast agent to look at how the liver is processing that dye or whatever agent it is, or to see like what's going on inside of the liver? For now, our purposes are to try to show uh, that you can use specific animals that have this transporter 
to better mimic human systems. So we took this transport protein that has different forms in, in, in mice and in humans, and we um, got animals, we got mice that have the human version of the transport protein, and we saw that you can create a system within mice that mimics the profile of contrast agent uptake and, and, uh, and then excretion the same way that uh, you would see in a human. Wow, that's really wild, actually. So then with imaging, you can use these contrast agents to help figure out if they worked or not. Yeah, so in, in, in a mouse like that, if you're developing a new contrast agent, you could inject a mouse with this contrast agent and show more and, and more closely predict how it would function in a human being as compared to the animal models that we were using previously, which were very different from, um, the, from the human profiles. So then what I'm really curious about now is what is Kate's involvement with this project? Over, over the years of working with Fairyel, I've learned everything from simple cell culture, that she took the time to teach me a septic technique, uh, all the way to expanding my own E. coli colonies for, uh, to isolate their plasmids. So my involvement is to help her with the, the detailed tasks of it so that the, the research goes on smoothly and that we have like a consistent procedure um, and a specific point person for each step in the process. Did Fairyel teach you everything like cell culture or did you have prior experience before this? Before coming to MSU, I actually had zero experience in research. I, I didn't even know that I could get involved before MSU. Um, so once I met Fairyel, she realized I had uh, a couple bad habits from things that I tried to teach myself uh, for the first year. And she was super patient and super kind. And she took the time to make sure that I knew how to properly do cell culture so that you don't uh, I mean, you can infect a whole population of cells and completely ruin an experiment just on accident by maybe touching the tip of a pipette to something you shouldn't have. Uh, so she has always given me step-by-step instructions written out, highlighted with notes <laughs> for her little bit of tweaking over from her experience over the years. And um, yeah, so she took the time to teach me everything that I'm able to do today. Now, in regards to this project, what was your contribution to Fariel's study? I, I would, I was in charge of keeping the cells alive a lot of the time. Fariel and I, and and Ryan, we switched off that uh, responsibility according to our schedules. Um, but I, I enjoyed that responsibility, um, especially when I didn't really know how to do much. I kept them alive and healthy, and when it was time, I. Uh, transfected them with the the proper transport protein, and I um, prepared them for her to to image in the MRI. And she also took the time to teach me how to work the very confusing MRI machine. Um, so I uh, I was involved from the cellular process all the way up to the imaging process. And can we remind our listeners what MRI stands for? Uh, magnetic resonance imaging. I remember you said that you've been in the lab for like three years, so that must mean that you joined like right after your freshman year. Was there a program that put you together or did you just find her? I actually was doing a lot of research 
for PIs or like principal investigators that are involved in MRI's research. And uh, I found Eric and I emailed him to set up a time to meet with him. And he uh, he let me into his lab. So I started at the very end of freshman year. He took me in and gave me some responsibilities. And I was <laughs> way like in way over my head. Uh, and then Ferial joined shortly soon after. And she was able to hone my focus and give me more <laughs> direction with helping with her projects. So I have... I've been in the lab for quite some time, and I plan on hopefully staying for quite some more. <laughs> Fariel, what has been your favorite aspect of working in this lab? I love the people in the lab. Um, I have had an amazing time working with Kate, and I think that the most important thing about research is collaboration. Without our ideas coming together and coming to fruition with the work of all of these different people, I think that scientific research would be impossible. And I really, really appreciate how much effort everyone puts into it to work together. You had mentioned collaborations. Is there any collaborations that your research laboratory works on with other research groups? Yes. Uh, so specifically, I have collaborated with Dr. Asaf Gilad's lab as well as Masako Harada's lab. They're, they're both professors at the Institute of Quantitative Health Sciences and Engineering at MSU, and uh, they have been very helpful in the genetics aspects of my research because we are focused on uh, MRI within Eric, uh, Eric's lab. And you guys have been working together for so long, and you have collaborators. Have you guys published anything together? Kate and I have not yet published anything together, mostly because the project that she has been working on is is tied to my thesis. So um, we have another undergrad in the lab who joined more recently, who I have published with, um, but that's because he had the horrendous task of processing over 600 urine and fecal samples. <laughs> so... Um, didn't want to. I didn't want to thrust that on Kate after her senior ship in the lab um, was uh, was final. It was was finally coming to fruition. Since Kate already graduated, but you said that you're coming back to MSU. Are you staying in the laboratory that you're in right now, or are you going to be doing research anymore? I'm not really sure what med school entails, honestly. Uh, well, the whole point of staying in East Lansing for medical school was that so that I could stay in the lab and continue doing research. Um, Ferial has been my guide through for what to expect for med school, and she um, she recommended that I take like the first year off from research to focus on school. But I I want to come back with full force to finish out the projects that I've started um, to keep helping because research is is very important to me, and it's something that I always want to be involved in. It's not something that you can just decide to take some time off from. <laughs> so. Um, the Shapiro Lab has the focus that I that I want in research, and I think that it would help me get really far as a physician as well. So, Ferial, you're in med school? Yeah. So I'm in the, like I said before, I'm in the DOPHD program. So uh, the way that it's structured is you have one year of work on your PhD, then you have two years of medical school, three years of PhD, and then for two years you go back into the clinic. I've always been familiar with 
people going to medical schools for their MD degrees, but you're going for your DO degrees. Can you explain to listeners what the difference is between an MD and a DO degree in the first place? The difference between an MD and a DO, uh, other than just the letters, uh, is that in medical school, DOs learn a technique called osteopathic manipulative medicine, and that uses the physician's hands and the uh, patient's body itself to treat to treat musculoskeletal issues um, in in uh, in a in an office or a clinic setting. So this is the only difference in the training that MDs get versus the training that DOs get. Other than that, it's almost one hundred percent the same. You mentioned a bunch of years in your program. Where are you at right now? I just became a fourth year. Um, so on, in a traditional track on, in this program, I would be taking medical boards right now, um, but I uh, chose to do things a little bit differently. So I've done one year of graduate work, then one year of, uh, of medical school, then another year of graduate work, and now I'm going uh, to do my second year of medical school this year. That sounds like a lot of classes. It is a lot of classes, <laughs> but I learn a lot, and I think that the medical degree gives me a really good bird's-eye view of uh, the biomedical fields, and I think that that will help me in the future to direct my research in a way that will be more patient-centered. Kate, what type of program are you going to be joining in this fall? Um, I'm doing just the standard old, old DO program. I'm not doing DO-PhD, even though I considered it for quite some time. I did ultimately land on uh, the DO program itself. Did you and Fariel discuss your future careers and pathways that you could be taking? At length. <laughs> I, uh, I go to her a lot to weigh the risks and the benefits of really any path that I can take. Um, and there have been many meals spent talking about um, where I would be if I took one versus the other. So I rely on Fariel a lot to be honest with me about the, the pitfalls of different like career paths and, and degrees. Research-wise, what is the biggest difference between a PhD and a DO program? So for just the DO program, if you're doing just the medical degree, research is something that is highly recommended to get a good residency at this stage for both MD and DO students. But it's very difficult at MSUCOM to to get the time to do the research because we have classes for two years straight, summers included, just a week or so off here and there. Um, so people try very hard to find the time to do the research and to find a lab, but it is very challenging and uh, usually the experience is minimal. Um, on the other hand, the PhD is just all about research, right? You are in the lab your whole life is the lab. So specifically for me, right now, I'm just trying to maintain the research that I'm doing, just try to keep things moving along as best as I can while I'm in medical school because it is incredibly time-consuming. Um, I hope that Kate can have some success uh, as a medical student doing research, um, but I think that she has an advantage because she's going to be continuing in the same lab that she's been working with for the past three years. I think that's a great advantage as well. How do you think that will impact your time now whenever you're in medical school? 
Uh, it'll be important about finding balance between living a life, uh, being a medical student, and finding time to do the research. Because um, doing research, it's really about making it a priority. Because it's very easy to just decide to go home for the day that you're done. You did your classes uh, and you're mentally tapped out. But you have to be able to focus and be able to understand when you have to devote the time to doing the research. So it's just important about finding that balance and finding the times when that will fit. Let's take it back to the research. What motivated both of you to want to get into this lab in the first place besides the people? I have a long history in research for, you know, my young age. Um, I started in a lab at 19. I'm 27 now, so I've been in and out of labs for eight years. Um, I love research. I always knew that I wanted to do research, no matter uh, no matter whether or not I went to medical school. That was beyond the point. So um, I, I worked very hard to... Uh, impress my first PI at my first uh, lab. And um, from there, I, uh, which it was a pharmaceutical lab and it was, it was a nanoparticle based lab. And from there I joined another lab. Um, I started at Northeastern University. After I graduated, I uh, worked at a lab at MIT that also worked on nanoparticles. And uh, I saw that when I came here, I saw that Eric had also worked with nanoparticles um, and I was very interested in in that field of research. When I went to speak with him, it seemed like he was leaning more towards the MRI, uh, biomedical engineering stuff. But um, I really uh, liked him as a PI. I think it's very important for a PhD to have a mentor who, as, as we're talking about mentor-mentee relationships, who will support you in the ways that you specifically need support um, and who will push you. So while I went into the lab because of the scientific aspects. Um, I ended up staying there because uh, the mentor-mentee relationship is such an important part of science. And I do love the research itself. I think MRI is very interesting. I think that there, there are a lot more uh, pathways we can go down to optimize our use of MRI. But um, the really important thing to me was finding a mentor who is a really good fit. And I think Eric is an excellent mentor. As a freshman, I had very little experience with anything regarding research. I hadn't read a published paper before, and I didn't understand what it entailed. So when I went to meet with Eric, um, his passion and his intelligence for the projects he was doing really got my attention. Um, and even though I, I felt like I didn't understand it then, and I sometimes I feel like I don't even understand it now, um, the application of the things that we're doing is it just keeps you focused and it keeps you going. Um, so it's like a, a story that you want to see what the ending is going to be. It just keeps you there. So I I was so interested in the projects that Eric had going and I knew I needed to get involved. Like Danny was saying, let's focus back on the research. Ariel, can you please repeat what is your dissertation about for people who are now tuning in? My dissertation is about a transport protein in the liver that takes up contrast agents that are used to improve imaging in MRI. And I am focused on trying to figure out how exactly these proteins work and how we can make them better. Would you be able to talk about any of these proteins in particular? Like, what do they do? For sure. 
the proteins that I work on are called OATPs, and they take up uh, things that are found in our bodies as well as things that we put into our bodies. So a lot of people are on statins for to control their cholesterol, and statins are one of the pro- one of the molecules that are taken up by these proteins. And then other things like bile acids, which are produced by our livers and stored in our our gallbladders, are also taken up by these proteins. Um, They're very important for the function of the liver as the liver cleans up things in our body, such as toxins. You mentioned OATPs. What are those? OATP stands for Organic Anion Transporting Polypeptides. And anions are just charged molecules. How does the use of these molecules increase the information that we're gathering whenever we're performing these imaging tests in the first place. The use of MRI contrast agents uh, changes the way that certain types of tissue appear when you take, quote-unquote, a picture with MRI. So, for example, if you have a little bit of a leaky blood-brain barrier, which is the cell structure between the blood system and the tissue of the brain, um, if, you, if that's a little bit leaky, the contrast agent will kind of leak through there and be bright, and then you can visualize it and make a diagnosis for something like multiple sclerosis. All right, so then to really break it down, from what I understand, you're injecting these contrasting agents to then be able to better image the proteins themselves. So that, that is an application of the system, but it is more that if you inject the contrast agent, it will go to different parts of the body if there are problems in that part of the body, um, to, to put it really simply, or it will not go into those parts of the body if, if in a normal system they would go into that part of the body. But to clarify, you guys are only looking at the liver or are you looking at other areas as well with this? I'm only looking at the liver. There are other people in the lab who are doing different things. There are other people in the lab who are doing things that are completely unrelated to OATPs and liver and contrast agent. Do you guys optimize the concentration of this contrast agent or is it just a set amount that they give everyone? We uh, optimize the concentration of the contrast agent for our experiments but we, for our physiological or studies that we uh, are comparing to human studies, we use the human dose corrected to the, mou- the weight of the mouse. Is there any possibility of these contrasting agents becoming commercialized and used in MRI machines everywhere? These contrast agents are contrast agents that are actually used all the time already. So we're, we're working on the protein end of it while um, utilizing these contrast agents to show that a humanized system within one of these mouse models is a much better option for preclinical screenings. What do people use in the past? People have used mice that have just regular mouse proteins. So they have a very different profile for contrast agent uptake as compared to these animals with human proteins. You mentioned that People use preclinical screenings right now and that your application can probably get rid of some of those preclinical screenings. What are some of those screenings that you think that it can help get rid of? 
I think that rather than get rid of pre of these preclinical screenings, some of the animals that are being used right now can be replaced with a system that mimics human systems better. That would eliminate further down the line running into uh, MRI contrast agents that worked in a mouse but then didn't work in the human once you got to a human or once you got to a non-human primate. Are there adverse side effects for these contrast agents? There are definitely always risks when it comes to using contrast agents. Um, For example, for some people who have kidney issues to begin with, uh, you can can cause some kidney damage using these contrast agents. Um, But of course, before you have such a study done, your physician would have a conversation with you about whether or not you have kidney damage and would order labs to see if you're eligible for such a study. So, Kate, you briefly touched upon some of the techniques that you've used in the lab to help with Fariel's project. Can you give us a little bit more of an in-depth view of what those techniques are like? At the beginning of the experiment, uh, my responsibility was to um, grow the cells that we've taken from other animals or even other humans um, to keep them healthy for the length of the experiment because they're often very hard to come by. Um, Sometimes you can borrow from other labs. Often they are shipped from somewhere in Europe and it's really hard to keep them alive. So we, we take these cells, different types of cells, and we transfect them, which means we, we add the, the transport protein that we want to the cells. And our goal is to, um, incorporate the transport protein into that cell so that we can actually test that transport protein uh, with all of our contrast agents um, and all the compounds that we want to see the effect of. So we are able to better narrow down the experiment because if something doesn't work uh, with the cells, it's not going to work further down the line either. And what's a creative solution that you guys have come up with sometime? It's really easy to accidentally kill cells, like really easy. And it happens quite often. So in order to ensure that we have just the cell type we want, sometimes we have to add a specific uh, antibiotic type. And uh, it's really easy to kill them with maybe the wrong antibiotic or the wrong concentration of it. So we've had to really narrow down the uh, the right antibiotic and the right concentration to use so that we keep the cell we want, but we're able to kill everything else. It seems like you both are really busy with medical school and graduate school. How do you both manage the time to sit down together and solve these problems and talk about your projects and the mentoring-mentee relationship? We have to do a lot of scheduling. Um, and for me... I just have to devote all of my time to either medical school or graduate school. And that's that's just the way life is for uh, a medical scientist trainee. Kate's been um, Kate gives me her schedule every semester and we try to figure it out. But she's also recently more than recently become a very independent sort of scientist in her own right. So it doesn't take a lot more than an email to get things going these days. And thankfully, we can always text each other. <laughs> um, I'll come into the lab. I'll find a, a note 
stuck to my desk with um, maybe a favor and then I'll get that done in texter and um, it, it used to take a lot of we need to meet here and then let's figure out what we're going to do for the next week uh, but now it's simply I really need these cells transfected here and I really need this plasma expanded here can you find some time to make that work I let her know what's going on and we we figure it out we've grown a lot together as a team that it seems to mesh really easy now of course, uh, occasionally we'll have sit-down meetings with the other undergrad who works with me in the lab to try to see the big picture view. I think that's super important for undergraduates to do. I think that uh, oftentimes PIs are so busy that they don't really have the time to sit down and explain everything and allow the undergrads to ask questions. And it falls to other members of the lab to really show them what's going on and help them to grow as scientists. Kate. Why do you think mentoring for women in STEM is important? As a woman in STEM, there are many obstacles that um, some people aren't exposed to. I've been so lucky that I have a, a mentor that has very similar life experiences to me and, and life goals to me and also happens to be a woman. Um, so her experiences kind of either line up or are able to preempt mine. And the ability to have a support system with someone who truly empathizes is really important. I think empowered women empower women. It's very important for a woman in STEM to understand that you're not cranky, you're confident, you're not a know-it-all, you're intelligent. It was, it was, it's wonderful to me to have that support because I'm, I'm not sure if I would understand that I am confident or intelligent without someone else to make sure that I know that. You mentioned experiences, and that got me wondering, Fariel, what type of experiences do you feel have impacted your ability to be a mentor for another woman in STEM? I think that I've had a lot of experiences surrounded by men in science, and you know, the vast majority of my experiences have been positive, probably because I'm lucky or probably because I was able to find um, common ground with these men. I think that having had a comfortable experience in science has shown me that other women can also have comfortable experiences in science. I've heard many women say that they haven't had comfortable experiences in science. And I wanted Kate to be able to see that she has the room to pursue science on her terms and not on the terms of the people around her. I think that it's really important for women to treat each other in science with respect and with uh, dignity so that everyone in science will choose or become used to the way that women are treated in science um, but I will say that to this day, when I go to a conference with my peers, there are often times when I will try to have a conversation and I will be spoken over by a man over and over and over again. And that makes me think there's still a lot of work to do. And it keeps me engaged with Kate in a way that I probably wouldn't have been otherwise. Those are really great points that you're bringing up, Varielle. It's currently still a very systemic issue right now in STEM as well as in many other fields too. 
I think Danny brought up a really good point that it is a problem for women in STEM. I know many women as well that have good experiences, but unfortunately not good experiences as well. And I think that there's still a lot of room for us to grow and develop. Does anyone have any ideas of how we can grow and develop to make mentoring for women better in the community and make women feel more included and like we belong? I think that a really important part of this is getting men to engage in this kind of positive mentorship for women as well. There are always going to be female trainees who have male mentors. And not to talk about how great Eric is again, but um, (laughs) Eric is one of the reasons that I am as assertive as I am today without thinking of myself as bossy. And he created an environment for me for me that made me uh, feel very comfortable even having discussions with him that I would not have felt comfortable having with a lot of my other male or any mentor, um, really. And uh, I think that if more men in a mentorship sort of position would uh, try to get women to understand that they are receptive to their to their um, ideas to their uh, discussions, um, it would be much easier for for women to assume that equal role within science. It seems like you had quite a number of different experiences in the academic world. And Kate is just starting off. Kate, could you tell us what you wish you could have learned from the beginning relative to now that you're a graduated student from Michigan State University? I wish I had known that it was okay to ask questions at the beginning and that it's okay to ask a lot of questions and a lot of questions that you may think are dumb because um, a lot of the a lot of the things that I had missed out on or that I made mistakes over or just... I don't know, all around didn't do was because I I didn't ask enough questions because I was worried about looking dumb or I was worried about not knowing what I'm doing, not understanding like this whole thing that someone had just explained to me. So um, I wish I had known that it's it's definitely okay to ask questions and that asking questions doesn't undermine any confidence that you might have. It's better to ask questions. Did it help having Ferriel there to be able to ask those questions as you developed more in the laboratory? Oh, yeah. She was actually the one who told me it's okay to ask questions and that I should be asking more questions because um, she would she would throw all this information at me and I would just sit there and try to soak it all in and reason through it in my own head uh, so that I didn't look like a... I didn't want to look like a woman who didn't know anything, <laughs> basically. So... Um, I wanted to be confident. So I just, I would uh, make a lot of technical errors that would lead to some setbacks. And um, Ferial made sure I understood that, yeah, it's definitely okay to admit that you don't know something, you're better for it, and that it's also better to ask questions. This has me thinking about imposter syndrome. Did you guys ever talk about that? I don't think we ever talked about it directly we never said the words imposter syndrome but we've definitely had conversations about uh knowing that you 
belong where you are. Um, and I think everyone experiences imposter syndrome, whether or not you admit it. Um, and I think that hopefully these conversations help us work through it in a way that allows us to be more productive. And to clarify for people who have not heard about imposter syndrome, that is a way that people characterize uh, people that feel like they don't belong where they're at because they don't think that they've done enough to get there. So like some people will also feel like they need to keep working so hard to keep proving like they're in that place. And like Kate was saying that she didn't want to ask a question so that people wouldn't look down upon her. That goes with some people who might say that they have imposter syndrome where they think that they don't want people to think less of them because of that. And I think it's really important in mentoring and mentee relationships to make sure that your mentee feels like they know that they belong in that spot. I think in science especially, it's difficult to to work around imposter syndrome because everyone has such specialized knowledge that they always know more than you do about something. Yeah, it's really hard because I study the bladder, but if you're going to tell me about the brain, it's not going to get too far with me you know like it's just I'm not a neurologist but if I talk to someone who's a neurologist about the bladder they're not going to get too far either and it's really hard for everyone to feel like they belong in the same spot when not everyone studies the exact same thing even if you're in the same lab everyone is still doing different things and it can make you feel bad if you don't understand something that you feel like you're supposed to know we talked a lot about how different experiences have helped shape your mentoring relationship and also your individual experiences as well. What are the plans now for whenever you do end up finishing your DO PhD program, Fariel, as well as your plans for whenever you finish your DO program, Kate? Kate, how long is your DO program going to take you? Four years. So I've been in for three and I have five more. <laughs> so I have a long way to go to think about this, but I have a pretty good idea of what I want to do. I think that coming into this, I really wanted to have kind of a 60-40 split between research and clinical medicine. I think that instead, what I really want to do is try to bring those two things together bring the research and, and the clinical medicine so close together that I don't feel like I'm choosing one over the other. And I hope that I can go on to uh, make innovations in um, a, a medical field that's more procedural. I think that I'd like to work on surgical techniques or imaging techniques um, or even image-guided surgery in the, in the future. As for me, I, right now I feel like the world is my oyster. I, not to dip into a cliche there, but I, I, I want to keep an open mind because there, there's so much research going on that like maybe I bump into something that is no longer MRI research. I, I want to be open to something like that. Um, and then there are lots of different subtypes of specialized medicine. And I have, I have my favorites, um, but I also know that there are some that I've never even been exposed to before. So right now, I my goal is just to keep an open mind and get involved in the things that I think are fantastic um, and then to go from there. Do you guys plan on doing any internships or anything like that? With medicine, your internship is really your residency pretty much. So 
when we graduate from our respective programs, we would choose a specialty and then you would go into a residency program, which functions as, as your training. And what is a residency program? A residency program is a program where you, after have, you've gotten your medical degree, you learn how to be a practicing physician within a specialty. So such as you would learn how to do all the things that an internal medicine doc does, or you would learn all the things that a surgeon needs to do, and you would be trained by a surgeon or a group of surgeons at a hospital. That's interesting because I remember when you were mentioning the surgery part, I, I don't recall you mentioning any surgery stuff about your research. I was wondering how you're going to do surgery work if you didn't have any training. So how long would that training be for? Like for a residency, how long is that for? For what I'm interested in, which is primarily uh, interventional radiology, which combines surgery and radiology, there is a, uh, a combined program in something like that would be a seven-year-long residency. Maybe this is an ignorant question, but how do you combine surgery with radiology? Like, are you under an imaging thing while they're doing surgery on you, or do they image you first and then do the surgery? There are techniques where you are under an imaging machine while they do surgery on you. So there are they're trying to develop PET or IR or fluorescent-guided surgical techniques. So, for example, you can have a scope that... Uh, you can use to see a tumor fluorescing after you have injected some sort of fluorescent marker into that tumor. And that way you can see the borders of the tumor more easily and perform a much more precise surgery without cutting into tissue that doesn't need to be cut into. Fariel, are you planning on doing your residency here at Michigan State or maybe going across borders? So uh, Michigan State doesn't currently have a training hospital. It's being built on the south side of campus right now. Uh, the closest residency programs here and the ones that Michigan is most closely associated with are Sparrow and McLaren. But I moved here from Boston and I'm pretty sure I'm a city girl, so I'm probably going to leave. <laughs> and then what about you, Kate? Are you interested in staying here at Michigan State for your residency or will you move back to a city or something like that? I grew up in East Lansing, um, but I do dream of a residency somewhere with palm trees. Um, we'll see if that happens because family is really important to me, and we have a lot of it, and it's all in Michigan. So we'll see what really happens. <laughs> Trade in but, the pine trees for the palm trees. I like it. Well, we did the opposite, right, Danny? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Went from Miami to East Lansing. <laughs> <laughs> but the important thing with residency is choosing a program that is going to fulfill your training needs. And I'm not really sure that there is a program in the area that fulfills my training needs. Something that I've also heard about are medical fellowships. What is the difference between that and a residency? A medical fellowship usually happens after a residency, so you would subspecialize, basically. You would, for example, if I wanted to do a just a straight radiology residency. I could do a radiology res residency and then go on to do a specialized internal uh, or sorry interventional radiology residency that would be like five years added on top of your radiology residency in order to get the training that you need. I know it's further down the line in a few years from now, but have you looked at where you'd be considering your residency in like four years from now, Ferio? 
I would really like to go back to Boston. I'm I would love to end up at MGH. I've also looked at UPenn a little bit. Uh, but like you said, it's a long ways away. How often do we see medical students going into residency programs outside of the United States versus inside the States? And why would people leave to outside residency programs? Training to practice in the United States requires that you do a residency program in the United States. So if you left... For example, if I, I'm from Pakistan, if I decided to go back to Pakistan to do, to do uh, my training there, uh, the systems just don't line up. So over there, it's like six months of residency as opposed to the three years or five years that you would have here. Could you go back to Pakistan and do a residency there, but then be allowed to do a residency over here and practice medicine across border? So it would be possible to get a residency when you when you come back but it would be nearly impossible um because it's so they're so selective about choosing residents for these residency programs already that there are some people every year who don't match into residency programs um and uh this is applicable for any country if you leave the united states before you've done residency to go to any country for training, it will be very difficult when you come back to try to practice here again. What happens if you don't match with a residency? Like, what do people do then? If you don't match into a residency program, usually that means it's the end of your career unless you apply a whole a whole bunch of other times and somehow get lucky. But that's usually not the case. If someone hasn't matched twice, they're probably not going to match Wow, Fariel, I think that's a really big issue that is currently keeping a lot of our medical students awake at night right now in today's day and age. And I think that's terrible because of the fact that we're asking our students to put in all of not only this time and effort, but also the amount of money that is involved with attending these different programs is borderline astronomical. Yeah, a lot of students go into incredible amounts of, of debt to afford medical school, um, and that's very different from, from graduate school, getting your Ph.D. Well, Fariel, you're doing both. Are you paying for med school while getting paid for grad school? Like, how's that working for you? I am paying for med school while getting paid for grad school, but I get a very discounted um, tuition rate. So uh, it, it, it ends up being in my favor. So I do have a salary every year that I make as a as a PhD student. I'm surprised a lot of other students don't end up going into PhD DO programs to help deal with the increasing debt that they would face in medical school. Well, it might be a time difference too. Like how many more years does it add on to your studies for real? It adds on 4 years, but these programs are also very very selective for people who are really interested in doing both. So if, if someone's trying to get into one of these programs purely for financial reasons, I think that the program directors are usually able to weed those people out. Uh, I understand. So it's not more of people aren't trying to get into the program. It's just a lot more difficult to get into the program in the first place. Yeah, exactly. Are there any financial assistance chips out there for you guys, like from the government or from the school or something like that? There are a lot of different options that you can try for. 
Uh, of course, there are merit scholarships that you can use for medical school, but there are also uh, public service kind of uh, arrangements that you can make where the government will end up paying off your debt. But I don't know if you guys have heard about this recently. A lot of those debts have not been paid back due to loopholes within the policies of, of those um, public service contracts. Well, as we near the end of this interview, I can see a lot of similarities in the life experiences that both you, Fariel, and Kate are sharing together. Can you talk a little bit before we end about the importance of mentor-mentee relationships and how that can help make or break your career as a undergraduate or graduate student? Yeah, of course. Um, I think I'd really like Kate to chime in a little bit, uh, but it's really important to find a mentor who has experiences that you can relate to and maybe goals that are similar to yours because that will allow you to make decisions based on their experiences in a, in a much more uh, kind of informed and proactive way. And as for mentors or people who are in a position to be able to mentor, it is an incredibly rewarding experience and you get to see your own life through a different lens uh, while helping somebody make incredibly important decisions for their own lives. Even though at the beginning of a relationship, I wasn't actually looking for a mentor. Um, it just kind of meshed into like an awesome relationship. I, I didn't have enough experience to know that I could benefit from someone helping me along the way. Um, I, I just had assumed that I could do it all myself. <laughs> and thankfully, I didn't have to do that. <clears throat> and I, I didn't need to do that. Um, because Ferial was um, three steps ahead of me to catch me if I was about to fall. And I think some of the important aspects of why she was able to do that is because I trusted her and she was honest with me. I don't think a mentor-mentee relationship can be as effective as possible if there isn't honesty and if there isn't trust. Um, because... Not everything is awesome and not everything is going to be easy and not everything's going to work out the way you want it to work out. So you need someone to be able to tell you, uh, no, <laughs> that's important. And um, ex also just explain why and to understand you enough to know what's best for you. So it just it worked out really well and I'm really happy. <laughs> well, I'm really happy for both of you. Ferio, Kate, thank you so much for joining us on this interview today. And I, I, not only am I inspired, but I hope our listeners are inspired as well. Thanks a lot. Thanks, guys. Thank you for having us. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. And remember, the truth is in the science. If you're a current or visiting undergraduate student that would like to be interviewed with your graduate student mentor, please reach out to us at scifiles at impact89fm.org. See you next week on The Sci-Files.